Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. chapter number one, as you are turning there, a reminder to our parents that the children and such will be singing out of the Oakview Heights nursing home tomorrow, Monday at 6.30. It begins. Sister Mason has asked for your children to be there 15 minutes early so that we can have them situated by the time that that 6.30 hour uh, comes. So please be there by 6.15 at latest. So that is on Monday. This coming Wednesday will be our candlelight service here. And uh, so we always enjoy our candlelight service moving into the Christmas holiday. And so come and be a part of that as well. I'm going to be reading, though, from 1 Peter chapter number 1. And we're going to start with verse number 17 this morning. We're going to talk today about redemption made available. Uh, last week, Bishop talked to you about the choice that brought bondage. And uh, so now we want to move you from that to redemption that makes that's available to you to get you out of bondage uh, into his promise. Because the miracle of the scripture is this or the overall the story of the scripture is this, is that he didn't just uh, get us out, but he brought us into something. Didn't just get us the nation of Israel out of out of Egypt, but he got them into their land of promise and so redemption made available first Peter chapter number one and again verse number 17 starting we'll read a few verses of scripture so glad to have our guests with us this morning amen we're thankful for them being here uh, coming and visiting us on this this during this holiday season thank you for coming verse 17 the Bible says and if ye call on the father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work passeth the time of your sojourning here in fear for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. The word conversation there isn't as you would think it is like have a conversation with one another. That actually means lifestyle from your vain lifestyle received by the tradition of your fathers. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, that's what you were redeemed with. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So this was this was a plan long in coming. This is a plan that was uh, in the mind before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest or implemented in these times for us all. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God that Christ that we're speaking of, that raised him up from the dead, gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Again, this morning we want to talk about redemption made available. I'm going to pray now that the Lord would help us in the next few minutes uh, in this lesson. Father, we come to you today. God, we're grateful, Lord Jesus. God, that you are the way that has been made, God, for all mankind. God, regardless, Lord Jesus, God, our nationality, Lord, regardless, our race, God, regardless, Lord Jesus, our paths in the past, 
I pray, oh Lord, today, God, you have made it available to each and every one of us, and we're grateful for it. God, that blood that was shed, God, was for all. God, we're thankful, God, that our lives can be benefited by that. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning in Jesus' name. What many believe, or they call it at least this, the path that the Lord took from Jerusalem to the cross on Golgotha's hill on Calvary, the Via Dolorosa, as they believe it was. Many times we look at that through the eyes of the Lord, him carrying his cross and them, them asking for another to Simon of Serene to help him in that endeavor. We look at Stripes that were put upon his back, the mocking, the spitting uh, that took place along the journey. But this morning, I'd like for you to consider not it through his eyes, but perhaps through the eyes, the Bible says, of one of the malefactors that hang on either side of him. They also had to make their journey to Calvary's Hill. They also had to make their journey to that place where they were all crucified. You can only imagine as there were jeers and and such going on among the soldiers and they're pushing their feet one in front of the other blood no doubt from Jesus is already flowing from his body crown has already been affixed to his head sweat is stinging their eyes they have been whipped but while they're going along and here's these two men who have done unjustly there is that third Christ who is really without fault as Pilate seeing nothing could be laid to his charge and while the malefactors may be saying some words back to the crowd and to the soldiers, the Bible seems to portray the Lord as though he's really just kind of keeping silent. There's not much that's coming from his mouth. I don't know really how I could take in that being one that had done wrong, spitting out words of anger, and then here's this guy walking along with me. He's going to the same fake that I'm going to, but he's not saying a word. He's somewhat silent. He's been beaten. He's, he's had some of the agony that I've had, but... There's not a word being said. And so as they're walking along, here is this silent individual and uh, not saying a word, going through the same things that they have went through. But now all three of them are being faced with something, mostly two of them though. They're being faced with the shame and the guilt for what they had done in their life. The shame and the guilt that brought them to this moment. They knew the reason for making this path to Calvary. They knew that they were guilty. They knew and they felt the shame of that guilt upon them. And as they went to that hill called Calvary, perhaps everybody's eyes are looking and here are the three and the silent man as the Bible portrays is in the center. But on their journey, the Bible even says there's a group of women that called out to the silent man and they, they, they cried among the jeering mob and it's in that moment that the one that had been silent broke the silence and he basically just tells them daughters of Jerusalem don't don't be weeping for me but you just go on and weep for yourselves and for your children he broke the silence in that moment maybe that sent a little bit of a chill through the other two men's lives as they heard him finally speak in a moment and in doing so he was just offering some to direction to these ladies that had tears going down their face yet whenever they get to the hill seems like the soldiers have have more of an interest in him than they do the ones that have done the wrong 
they're eager to put the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and do whatever they could do to him, consumed with tormenting him, me being there going to the same cross that he's going to be going to. I'm wondering, my uh, mind, what in the world's gotten into them? Why are they so obsessed, so obsessed with him? He seems to be the main attraction. They're gambling even for the clothes that he had on. What in the world is going on? And so the longer, no doubt, one of the malefactors or either of them stared at Jesus, perhaps the more that he realized that he was a little bit different than what they were. Perhaps he realized that they were getting what they deserved, but this man, not what he deserved. Because in all the moments of this taking place, Jesus, again, breaking the silence, he would cry out and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While the others might have hate and there still might be wickedness in their hearts, he's saying, forgive them, Lord, for they don't know what they are doing. And all of a sudden, the Bible speaks that there is the other soldier. There, there is the other, rather, malefactor, the other robber that was hung with the Lord. And he states to the Lord these words. He said, if you be the Christ, he says, why don't you save yourself and save us from this torment and instinctively something burst out then of the other robber when he said that he said sir he said do you not fear God see we're under the same sentence if you will as this man we are sentenced we have a sentence of condemnation upon our lives we we indeed deserve what we are getting but this man has done nothing wrong and when he had stated those words, the Bible says the silent man, Jesus Christ, opens his mouth again and looks at the man that had stated those words, perhaps with love, said unto him this. After the robber said, Lord, remember me when you come to my kingdom. Jesus would reply and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Save yourself and us. Come down from this cross, Jesus, was the voice of one of the robbers. But what he didn't realize in that moment was this. Jesus could not save anyone from coming down from the cross. But he could save everybody by staying on the cross. What took place, there were three. We understand three on the hill. The Bible says a malefactor to each side of Jesus. If you can look at it like this, what we had on the hill of Calvary was repentance Redemption and rebellion. And whenever rebellion opened his mouth against redemption, repentance, the Bible says, rebuked rebellion. And as a result, that allowed the working of redemption to take place. That's the story of repentance in our life. When we come to God and repent to God, you know what it does? It rebukes all the wrong, all the ills, all the rebellion, if you will, in our life. And what that starts then is a, a journey and a moment for redemption to have its start in our lives. As the story would go, though, we understand it well. That was then, but all the way back in the garden as we've been studying along in this series, uh, humanity had rejected God in the very beginning through Adam and Eve. They had rejected God, and that seemed to continue from there all the way, even still yet today. Humanity is in a constant place at times of rejecting God. But that does not keep God. Thank goodness it doesn't. That does not keep God from continuously trying to reach out 
to humanity. We reject him, yet he is constantly pulling for us, giving us the invitation to come and abide where he is or for our life to be changed. In the garden, they rejected him. Amen. But he's pulling for them. At the flood, whenever Noah, whenever he makes the boat, and he's a preacher of righteousness for hundreds of years before the rain ever come. What happens? The door shut and only Noah and his family is saved. There was a whole segment of society that rejected the Lord. That rejected being saved. But that did not keep the plea from coming in order for them to be so. You get to Genesis like 10 and 11. There's a tower of Babel being built. What's happening? Society once again is rejecting God, but he's constantly pulling for them. We have Lot and Abraham. They're separating their ways in the wilderness. And Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's wickedness. There's perversion. And what's going on? Again, mankind is rejecting God. But God is extending his hand, trying to make a way so that on the eve before the fire and the brimstone fell, an angel of the Lord said, Lot, let's get you and your family up out of here. And the Bible says that Lot still yet lingered. Still yet lingered. Amen. And then the angel of the Lord finally had to lead them out of the city. What is that? That is God choosing still yet to have fellowship and give an invitation in spite of humanity's rejection. So I say this this morning. You may be here today and say, well, I don't know about this God thing or this God stuff and I'm just going to live my own life. Listen, friend, I will tell you this. You can reject God today and you can reject God tomorrow and for months upon months, but that will never make God quit reaching for you. That will never make God quit giving an invitation, extending a hand of fellowship and relationship to you. You are always going to be in the crosshairs of the pursuit of God. Every individual, man, boy, girl, doesn't matter our age, till the day that we die, he is in pursuit of humanity and it will never, never quit. He wants to have a relationship. God is pursuing us and he has all across the centuries. That's the reason why in the beginning, Whenever he went to Abraham and he called Abraham, he made that special offering, if you will, to Abraham. That Abraham, I want to make a great nation out of you. I want to great, make a great nation out of your seed. I want to make a covenant with you. I want the people that's going to be born from your loins. They're going to be a special people to me. And I want to have a relationship with you. Amen. And I want to do this. I want to, I want to bridge the gap that was formed in Eden. I want to bridge that gap and have a relationship with mankind. But in order for that to take place, that meant sin that happened in the garden was going to have to be dealt with. In order for sin to be dealt with, there's going to have to be some type of payment for sin. Someone look at your neighbor and tell him, I'm poor. We're poor. Now, you might really be rich in this life, but when it comes to spiritual things, we are all poor. What that means is this. None of us had the ability to pay the payment that needed to be paid for the offense of sin in the garden. So whenever he wanted to bridge the gap, sin had to be dealt with. But in order for sin to be dealt with, a payment had to be made. And all humanity is poor, incapable of making the payment. So we got a situation on our hands. We want to bridge the gap, but there's something there that has to be dealt with, but none of humanity can deal with that. What does that mean? That the great God of heaven that created mankind in the first place was going to have to come down in the form of a man to do what man couldn't do alone or by himself. Amen. He who was rich, the Bible says, made himself what? Poor. 
<laughs> but he also lived a life that none of us could live. And so from the moment of birth in Bethlehem, which is the reason of our season today, from the moment of birth in Bethlehem till that 33rd year of his life, he was in pursuit of the answer to the sin problem of you and I, to bridge the gap of that relationship between you and I. But here's the thing. It came about perhaps in Bethlehem's manger leading up to Calvary. But it was a plan that was in place before Calvary and Bethlehem ever got here. He would give us little glimpses of it in the Old Testament. There were in the Old Testament all types of offerings and the law had all type of ceremonial things that had to be done in order for one to enter into what was known as the presence of the Lord or the presence of God. It was a temporary system. It was good for the Old Testament. But what it was doing was conditioning the minds of the people because for a priest to ever get in where the presence of God was, it took the blood of an animal. He could not enter there without blood. And so in the minds of those Old Testament people, they understood we can't get into the presence of God where it's at without blood. Then it was the blood of a real lamb or the blood of a real animal in the Old Testament. But when we get in the New Testament, we're going to enter into the presence of God too. But it don't happen without blood. But there was blood when God made himself a body as mankind. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. They knew from the Old Testament it takes blood to enter in. It still takes the same in the New Testament. But it doesn't take a literal lamb or a literal ram or literal goat it took the son of God which was Jesus Christ that came down in Bethlehem but died on Calvary to give blood amen to give blood for the salvation of humanity so that everyone who would be a partaker of that blood or had that blood applied to their life could be ultimately redeemed see this is this is what we've been talking this is the big story of the Bible redemption is the big story of the Bible all the blood shed in the Old Testament, it's the big story of the blood. That Hebrew said he entered into that place as the priest, which is, which is very, very significant that Christ entered into the New Testament, into that tabernacle as both the priest and the sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, you know, here's, here's the priest carrying his lamb as you, you know, he's carrying his lamb, he takes it to the altar. It's, the blood's going to be shed there. He's going to take, he, is everybody okay? He, he's got, he's got, I know this is a poor lamb, <laughs> kind of a blockhead lamb, but uh, he's taking it to the altar. It's going to be sacrificed. Blood is going to be shed. Then they're going to take that blood to the laver and they're going to wash with blood and water at the laver. But then they're taking blood with them even to the holy place, ultimately into the holies of holies where the presence of God is and they're going to sprinkle the blood upon that. That's, that is the story of the Old Testament. A priest going through and doing all that. But the story of the New Testament is the priest is coming in he don't have a sacrifice in his hands because the priest is the sacrifice Jesus Christ our high priest that lamb of God he's coming in he comes to the altar and he crawls upon the altar himself the cross and blood is shed 
And that blood, if you'll note, that blood was even taken to the presence of the Almighty because the Bible says after he resurrected, that Mary being the first one to the tomb, and she goes and tells the disciples, they come back, and then she's there again, and she sees what she thinks is a gardener that's there, and, and what have you done with the Savior? And says, and there comes that realization in the moment that Christ, who she thought was the gardener, called to her and said, Mary, Mary, she knew it was the Savior. She knew it was Christ, and he says, don't touch me what he said because I've not yet went up into the heavenlies what he's talking about I've not yet went to the holies of holies I got the blood but I've not yet went in there he was he was the priest he was the sacrifice he's the one that presented the blood and he's the also the one that said you know what all of that that was wrong all that that was incorrect all the sin it's okay now the payment's been made I became what the payment do you understand he had the idea there needed to be a payment he became the payment and he was the one that said the payment is sufficient amen said the payment is sufficient so it is the story of redemption all throughout the scripture. Look what the Bible says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. This is in the new King James Version. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember no more. See, you hold, if you pick up your Bible this morning, you hold in your hand a, 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 a book of two, of two covenants. You call them Old and New Testament, but the word testament also means covenant. You hold in your hand a book of two covenants. He says in the old covenant, he says, it, he said, the covenant that I'm making is not going to be like the old covenant that I made. The old covenant that, that in many ways was etched upon stone that Moses brought down from the Mount of God, the Ten Commandments. He said they broke. Not just literally, but in their life they broke. They didn't keep it. They sinned. They bear false witness against their neighbor. They had other gods before them. Did that one many times if we count the tally marks. All the time they broke it. He said, we're not going to do that. He said, that's something that's, that, that there they could put their hands on ex exterior. They could read it. They could touch it. He said, no, I'm going to do one better than that. He said, where it was just something that was on the exterior, I'm going to get it inside them. I'm going to write it upon the tables of their heart. I'm going to write it upon their minds, upon their hearts. They're going to be, they're going to be my people. You're not going to have to worry about a neighbor, you know, this one teaching a neighbor or that one teaching a man. No, he said, they're going to know me because whenever I get done, it's not that it's just something tangible out here that you can go read and look and feel. It's going to be right here. It's going to be in them. This new covenant is going to be in them. And he says, I'm going to forgive them. Look, I'll forgive them of their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Doesn't that, it's, and listen, God can do anything, okay? So it's not that God couldn't couldn't bring up some sin in your life it's that he chooses not to he doesn't he chooses not to recall it 
which I think is even more powerful than having forgot it is that he chooses not to remember it. Amen. He chooses not to remember it. And so, see, there's something changing then. So in the Old Testament tabernacle where we had, where we had an altar, now as the scenes and the acts, if you will, of the big story play plays out, if you could just imagine with me for a moment, it's like the play is going on. They had an altar there on the stage as you're looking at this theatric presentation of the Bible. But all of a sudden, the lights went in, they came back on, and they replaced the altar with a manger. They replaced it with a, a manger where there's a baby being born. A baby that's being born to Mary and Joseph, who is fully God, but fully man. Whose father was... Not Joseph biologically, but whose father was God, whose mother was Mary. God became flesh. And so the story goes on. On one hand, here he is, he's turning water into wine. On another hand, he's bringing a dead back to life again. On another hand, he's given sight to the blind. And so we have the story that's going on. But there's a common little phraseology that happens throughout all those different stories within the big story that's taken place. And the Bible says his hour had not yet come. Wait a minute. So we're working, to, we're working towards some climax here. We're working towards some climax. And so, you know, uh, make, 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 turn the water into wine, Jesus, you know, as his mother would say. He says, like, woman, he said, my hour has not yet come. Or they're going to shove him off a brow of a hill, and it doesn't take place because the Bible says his hour has not come. We're working towards something. What are we working toward? We're working toward the very plan that was in the mind of God from the beginning back in the Garden of Eden. And what happens in our story is not what people want to happen in the stories that they watch and they read. Everybody is totally disappointed whenever the hero of a story is killed in a movie or in a book. You know, they're like, I didn't see that coming. It's not supposed to work this way. Some people just get up and march. That, I'm mad. That, I'm, I'm just mad. Frustrated. But that's exactly how our story has went. The hero of the story gives up I would like to say it like that gives up his life because our hero is a merciful hero but he's also a very mighty hero and in order to fight the shame and the guilt that mankind deals with because of his sin he understands it's going to take his death in order to bring about the healing that needs to take place and so here it is, which is so interesting to me. Jesus Christ with his disciples, three that supposed to went a little further than he is a stone's cast distance away, praying in the garden of Gethsemane. It started in a garden, and it comes to some of its finality in a garden. He's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, and here comes those soldiers. They're coming with their, their rods, if you will. They're coming with their swords and with their weapons. Our hero goes with them without a fight. Come on, you know. 
We're screaming as we look at the story go. Why don't you just give a fight? He's tortured. He's interrogated. He's given to an unjust trial. Soldiers are mocking him. Crown of thorns is laid upon his head. And here we have the silence of our man, if you will. And we're all just standing there stupefied as we watch in horror everything that's happening to our hero. And even the crowd now is crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But the fact of the matter is this. Jesus died for our sins because he had to die for our sins. And he died because he did it. Everybody say, for mine. For my sins. I know some say, well, why in the world did he go to the cross? He could have been, well, again, it was going to have to take blood, but he did it not for his sins. That's so important. Christ didn't die for his sins because he didn't have any sins to die for. He died. For your sins. What? So that with blood we could make it into that presence of the Lord. So that mercy and grace could triumph over, if you will, justice that should have been served to you and to me. He became the payment for our, our freedom. So he died and they buried him in a tomb and the soldiers sealed it. and They made sure that everything was good so that his disciples wouldn't be able to come and steal it away. They set a watch there. And then something amazing happens, though. As the women come to anoint the body of the Lord, the stone is already rolled away, and it is empty. And there's two angels, one at either end of where he had been laid. Uh, the ladies are collapsing to the ground. So now not only has our hero died, now where they placed him, he's not there. We've got a big problem on our hands. Peter and John run to the tomb, and even in their eyes they see that it is empty. Everybody, you know, you can almost, this is the climax of the story. Everybody is leaning in on the edge of their seat. They have bated, bated breath. What in the world is going on? What's went on is basically this. I know this is simplistic today, but Jesus has arisen from the grave. In order to take dominion and power over death. Matter of fact, the New Testament scripture says, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because the scripture said, Paul said, that the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, the old covenant. The old covenant. So the old covenant gave strength to sin. I've, I've, I've said these things a thousand times. How about a thousand and one? The old covenant gives strength to sin. Because if you don't have no law, you don't know when you've done wrong. If there's no law, there's no rules, there's no regulations. You just do as you want to do, when you want to do it. And you don't know if you've ever done wrong because there's no measuring stick to measure yourself against. But if we have rules and regulations, we know when you've stepped over a rule or over a regulation. The old covenant, the law, gave strength to sin because now men knew when they sinned. Thou shalt not kill. I killed somebody. I sinned. Hmm? I committed adultery with, with my neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not. I sinned. But the problem with that is this. The law said, okay, you've sinned. But the law was incapable of telling us how to fix the sin problem. It could tell you where you were wrong, but it couldn't tell you how to make you right. It was the accusatory finger that was just point, 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 but it could not point you to anything. 
So it leaves us at a loss. I'm in my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I'm in my sin. But Galatians says that the law was also our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Why? Because what the law could not do, Jesus could do. What the law could only reveal and not fix, Jesus could fix. And so then the sting of death is sin, right? The sting of death is sin because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not just in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense. But when we get in the New Testament, we have a Christ that died then, took away the sting of death, the victory of the grave, rose from the dead, that's a big one, with dominion and authority of what? Of being able to take care of our sin issue. So it wasn't just enough, and this is important, it wasn't just enough for Jesus to die. If he had just died, that would have been admirable. That's great. But he couldn't just die. He had to get back up. Because if he just died, he would be similar to a lot of other martyrs that went on even before him. He'd be similar to a Stephen that died for a cause. Died and believed in what was right. That would have been admirable. But he had to raise again because coming back from the dead is what gave the power and the authority over death and the grave. Having power and authority in heaven and in hell. Having power and authority upon the earth. That's what allowed him to be able to work in our lives. Look, if you will, to Ephesians 1 and verse 20 and 21. But I'm going to read it in the New King James Version this morning. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dimension and, and dominion rather and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come what he said whenever Christ came from the dead he was set above all principality and powers all those different levels of, of authority and dominion he set him far above all of those principalities and powers might and dominion he gave him a name above every name that was given amen not only in this age but in every age to come that's the reason why the name of Jesus works just as well today as it did in the first century because that name was above every name for every age above every principality power and might of every generation amen the name of Jesus the blood of Jesus for that matter and so he resurrected he defeated Satan the Bible says before he ascended he descended and that's not just descending to the earth the Bible says he descended to the lowest parts of the earth to hell received those keys of death and held back from the adversary. Look what the scripture says. Hebrews 2 and verse number 14. It states these words. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death. He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage hold on yes they were subject to bondage all of their days but because of death there was a release it was a release so much so the bible says the moment that christ died upon the cross that there were some that even came walking from their tombs well the graves were open rather in jerusalem and whenever he rose some came walking even from their tombs the power of his death and even resurrection was so mighty without even touching them, the event itself opened tombs and allowed some to get up and go. Now that's a powerful, 
That's a powerful death and resurrection. And lastly, then, of course, then, was that after he resurrected, he's going forth and what that provides for us. This is our mandate. This is our mandate as a church. This is our mandate as individuals that we must share or be teachers of the gospel. Gospel is basically this, meaning two words, good news. Good news. If you just teach his death, you've left people with no hope. Sometimes there's a lot of concentration on the death of the Lord. People wear crosses around their necks, leaving him on the cross, you know. I understand they're empty crosses, but nonetheless, we don't just want to leave them at the cross. You want to also take them to the tomb. We won't, don't want to leave them at the tomb. We want to take them to the empty tomb. We want to take him to a Christ that's alive but well that says, handle me and fill me, that I am even he. We want to teach the whole good news, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it was that 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 trilogy of three, if you will, that, that death, burial, and resurrection that ultimately brought, brought redemption for you and I. That's not, a, that's not anything to shrug your shoulder over. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, verse 17, again, the New King James Version, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, and please just underscore that in your Bible in your minds. Without partiality, he judges according to each man's work. For everybody that says it doesn't matter what you do. That any type of works thing is a sham. The Bible says that your works will even follow you into judgment. In other places of scripture. So it doesn't matter what we do. Conduct, and here's, here's the, the admonition then, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, meaning reverence, respect, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, and he was. But was manifest when in these last times for who? Us. Through him believe in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. As that your faith and hope are in God. What Peter is given here in this verse. He has a metaphor really for redemption. His metaphor of redemption is a metaphor of a slave that is being freed. A slave that is being freed from his master. Being freed from his master by the payment of ransom money. That's really the metaphor. A slave's going to be free, but the only way he can be free is someone pays ransom money for his freedom. So in this sense, he says, you, though, were set free. The ransom for you was not silver and gold like some other common slave was. No, the ransom money for you was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that was the ransom money. He was our ransom to get freedom. And also in that, it's important to note the only thing that Jesus ever bought was the church. Yeah. Only thing he ever purchased. With. Any other time we ever see him rendering money, he just gave up money for the purpose of taxes, but he got that from a fish. <laughs> but we don't see him ever having bought anything in his earthly journey. The only thing was the church. And that wasn't silver or gold that he paid. That was his life's blood that he gave. How precious. How precious is that? If you'll stand with me here this morning.
redemption made available. I preached this several times, but I think it's important to pin it in our minds again. When we look at Passover in the Old Testament, we consider Passover in the New Testament, you know, the day that the lamb was selected was the day Jesus came in on the donkey into Jerusalem. And the day of Passover is the day that the lambs were killed. the day that the death is happening on Calvary's hill. Picturing real truly that he was the lamb of God. Old Testament, what, every, a lamb for a household. Blood was shed, put in the basin. And then those of the house had to put the blood on their lintel and on their doorpost. Remember the story of the Old Testament? Exodus 12, I believe it is, and 13. Redemption made available. Redemption made available is different than redemption appropriated or applied. Again, slaying the lamb in the Old Testament and putting blood in the basin would have never saved the people from the death angel that passed by. It was blood on the doorpost. But the dead lamb didn't put the blood on the doorpost. The people of the house applied the blood that was made available in the basin by the death of the lamb. Redemption available is Calvary blood being shed. But it takes our involvement to apply the blood. To bring redemption from being available to being applied. For our individual lives. January 22nd, 2012. is an ordinary day as it seems for the Tyson family. They lived in England. They were walking along the coast there, along the water. Irish Sea, always loved to do this. George, who was the father, he's 61 years old. This is a true story. Gary, his son was just 32 years old. Gary was uh, physically uh, disabled, had suffered from a head injury whenever he was a child. and fell out of an upstairs window as a toddler had landed on the ground. And as a result of that, he was physically disabled. So he lived with his parents. He's 32 years old. His father and mother had looked after him for all these years. Uh, George was a, a carpenter, and he would take times out of his schedule and his day to devote part of his afternoon each day to walk with his son along the Irish Sea to pay attention to him. On this particular day, as they were walking and strolling along, there was, uh, as investigators report, a white compact car vehicle that came around a curve that was careening toward both George and Gary as they were walking, and it was coming to them at high speeds. They could see it, and there were some eyewitnesses that bore to what was going to take place. George, the father, seeing what was going to happen, could see it coming on. In a split second, he made a decision uh, for his family, more importantly for Gary. And he jumped in front of the flying car and pushed Gary out of its path to safety. He foreseen what was coming. He took the brunt of the hit, if you will, to his own body. Both of them had some scratches and bruises, but when they went to the hospital, Gary had, or George, the father, had died upon impact, but Gary just had some injuries and some shock that he was dealing with. All the eyewitnesses and the villagers were going to grieve the loss of the father, George, who had done this, but what they really seen is that he had done this for his, his son, his son, Gary, who he knew, listen to me, he knew that if he'd be hit, he'd probably die. But here's something else he knew. He knew he was living a life over 32 years already disabled. But he said, I'm going to let him live rather than me. It's a true story. You can look it up. The fact of the matter is this. We all are living this life in a disabled type of situation as well. 
Mm -hmm. Yet God said, you know what? I see what's coming down the pike. Death, ultimately. He says, I'm just going to push those who are already disabled aside. And I'll let my life go for the purpose that they might have life. I say this this morning. I'm ending. Brother Mason, you can come. That story perhaps has reached all kinds over, over the years of the father sacrificing his life by leaping and saving his disabled son. But I want you to consider this this morning. The penalty of death, the penalty of our sin should be upon us, but God took it. Here's something I want us to think about. It would be a travesty today for us not to take advantage of the sacrifice of the Lord. Because think with me for a moment. If you've not received redemption through Jesus Christ, then in essence, you're just throwing away his trip to Calvary. Mm -hmm. If you don't take advantage of that, then you're just throwing away his trip to Calvary. Have you ever had that moment? I know I've had. You ever had some, you know, kids are kids. You ever had that moment that you thought you got something for your kid that they were just going to, they're just going to love this. They don't like this. You spent money on it, which meant somewhere in the past you worked hours in order for that money to be available to spend on it. And then you brought it to them, and it's like, yeah. You can tell they're not really enthused. And they're kind of like, you know, thank you, but how does that make you feel as an individual? How does that make you feel? Just take that same scenario and shift it to the Lord. That he went through all this, went through Calvary for the purpose of making this available to you. And then for you to refuse it. It's like, man, shed blood for this, you know. <laughs> Took cat of nine tails for this. Crown on my head, did all this for this. So if we throw away, don't want to throw away his trip to Calvary. The big story of scripture again, redemption being made available if we enclose our eyes in this place this morning brother mason i don't know if you have something that's appropriate here today but if we could sing this morning and if we could just where we're standing today just lift our eyes or our hands rather toward heaven and if you've already received the story of salvation the story of calvary in your life that's great you just might thank him once again for that and appreciate him for it hallelujah thank him for the ultimate overarching story of the word of the lord we preach all kinds of different sermons from it. But there is only one theme about it. And that's salvation. That's redemption. Father, I come to you today. God, I love you, Jesus. God, I don't want your death to become old to me. I don't want, Lord, your burial, Lord Jesus, in a borrowed tomb. You had a borrowed womb and a borrowed tomb. God, I don't want that to become old to me. God, I don't want, Lord God, the resurrection, Lord, to become old to me. Lord, the blood that was shed for me, I don't want that to become owed to me. Lord, I don't want to approach it as though it was owed to me, as though, Lord, I was deserving of it. Lord, God, as though you, you needed to do that. No, no, no. God, you took it upon yourself, and I'm grateful. God, you took it upon yourself, and I'm thankful. Thank you, Lord, for the story of redemption. God, I was a broken state. Humanity is in a broken state, Lord, when we leave the garden. But she's in a state available for repair, God, when we leave Calvary. I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, today, God. Lord, oh, Lord, thank you, God, for the Pentecost. God, the Pentecost of Acts 2. God, that just sets on top of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm grateful today for it. Hallelujah. Can we sing this morning as we close this service today?
Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.